You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I want us to, to kind of go back through Genesis 5 a little bit today. I want to make some additional points that we didn't have time to make last week. But I want to specifically draw on uh, something that we discussed in our C groups this past Wednesday. In Genesis 5.22, uh, talking about the person of Enoch, it says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. And had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. In our C group we were talking about just the point that uh, Enoch existed in a time that was at least as bad as the time that we live in today as far as culturally and how sin and temptation um, is something that we encounter regularly. He was living in a time in, is that it was at least as bad as it is today, if not worse. We know, and we're going to see in the coming weeks as we get into the account of Noah, that, that the, the, the condition of the earth was in such disarray that God felt like he had to step in and, and bring judgment immediately and, and kind of restart the process with Noah and his family. And so you've got Enoch who's existing in a time that's very difficult. There's there's no um, advantage really for him. In fact, he may have been at a disadvantage. Somebody in our secret pointed out the fact that, you know, we we fight temptation by being in God's word. And here's an individual who doesn't have the written word yet to even rely upon. Right. So Enoch is walking with God. And, and it's obviously going to look different than what we think of sometimes when when you talk about your walk with God, a lot of times the conversation will go very quickly to your devotional life and your prayer life, that this is what it means for me to walk with God. And it's a compartmentalized thing almost. It's here's what my walk with God looks like, and then here's what the rest of my life looks like. And, um, you know, we were talking about just the fact that Enoch didn't have God's word to fall back on as far as in written form. He's relying on God's word being passed down orally from his from his ancestors, those that are gathering together to worship publicly it's more of an oral tradition than a written tradition um, and yet we have enoch walking with god uh, we have enoch pursuing the things of god um, ultimately in a way that causes god to uh, to take him from this earth um, the message of of chapter five and, it, and i think it's it's crazy to think about how many uh, years we're talking about here in chapter five this is I think this section of Scripture covers the, the most amount of years of any other section of Scripture in, in, in our Bible. So you're talking about over 1,600 years is written for us in, in a few verses here in chapter 5. 1,600 plus years. 7 billion people potentially in existence on the earth by the end of this chapter. And what we find in chapter 5, the major message of this chapter, is that death reigns as a result of sin... But there is hope of future rest. And that message is still true for us today, that death reigns all around us. Um, many of you probably passed some type of cemetery on your way here today. They're, they're not that far away. The reminders of death. Uh, many of us have experienced death within the past few years in our own family, family and friends that we've seen pass away. Death reigns around us, and yet we know that there is hope of future rest that's coming. There's three men that we've, we've highlighted in this chapter, really. Adam, here at the beginning of chapter 5, reminds us of sin and death reigning, that his actions ultimately led to his death. But then we have Enoch, who we're highlighting again this morning, who, who is an example that, that conquering death is possible, that because of the work of Christ, death can be conquered, that there is a hope 
of existence after death. And then Noah, which we're going to see in the coming weeks, points us to new life after God's judgment. We know we wait for Jesus to come back, and we're going to see in the New Testament that God judged Noah's time with water. God's going to judge our time with fire. And we long for the after effects of that. We long for the new heavens and the new earth and the eternity. So when God brings judgment this time, he's not going to reset things with a family. He's going to reset things with his people from all time. And it's going to be a permanent condition that he ushers us into an eternity with him. We, we, we highlighted the fact last week that Seth's genealogy reminds us that God always preserves a remnant. So in Genesis 5, it's a lengthy passage of names and years and um, times here on the earth and sons and daughters. But it reminds us that there's always a, a people of God in existence here on this earth. And it's a literal genealogy, I believe, with with no gaps. We talked about sometimes in Scripture genealogies have gaps that, that it leaves out individuals. But this one seems to be very specific. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 1. 1 Chronicles chapter 1. We talked about the purpose of genealogies a couple of weeks ago. And we said that uh, genealogies ultimately a lot of times will show someone's rightful claim to a position. And so... Talking about Genesis 3.15, that, that there's coming an individual who will set things right, who will fix everything that Adam and Eve have undone. And so God preserves this genealogy after the flood. So think about the fact that there was some form of writing that probably took place before the rains came. But we have no, we have no historical records beyond what Scripture gives us of what happened before the flood. Nothing. If we don't have secular writings, we don't have anything that exists post-flood. Only the account that God gives through Moses of what took place during that time. So God preserves this genealogy very specifically because it points us to the fact that Jesus Christ has claim on the office of being the Messiah. In 1 Chronicles 1.1, we have Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the exact same order that we see back in Genesis chapter 5. If you skip ahead to Luke chapter 3 now, Luke chapter 3, we jump ahead to the Gospels, where this genealogy is now applied to Christ. The way this genealogy is set up, it's in reverse order. So we go to Luke chapter 3, we skip down to verse 36, and we're working our way backward. The son of Canaan, the, the son of Arphaxact, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. And then even in Jude 7, we've already referenced the fact that uh, Enoch is the seventh from Adam. And so God preserves this genealogy so that we can see that Christ has a rightful claim to being the promised Messiah. We talked last week as well about Cain's descendants being noted for their earthly accomplishments and Seth's being noted for their spiritual pursuits. So in the chapter 4 all through chapter 5, you've got these lists of individuals and we have no earthly accomplishments attached to them. It's all about their spiritual pursuits, their calling upon God, their worship of God. We've got one serving God, this, this genealogy of Seth. We've got this, the genealogy of Cain in chapter 4, serving self. Seth's genealogy, instilling goodness in the descendants. 
Cain's instilling greed. Seth's living with the eyes of faith. Cain's living with the eyes of the flesh. The implication for us is, are we actively teaching with our words and our actions? Or are we passively teaching with our silence? You know, you've got, you've got Seth and, and every descendant that's coming from him passing down what they know about God. We talked last week that there was plenty of things that they knew about God. God was revealing himself faithfully. And then these individuals were passing it down to their children. We're going to come back to that point in a minute because we discussed some things at C group. And I want to give maybe you some time to, uh, to reflect on things that were shared in your C group. Uh, but God's grace is seen in the provision of life and fertility here in this chapter that we highlighted last week. Uh, there's prospect of future rest. We see through um, the descendants all the way down to Noah's father, Lamech, that there was a desire and a hope for the Messiah to come to set things right. Now, Lamech falsely hoped that it would come through his son, but ultimately it's a reflection of him longing for that day when Genesis 3.15 would be fulfilled. We talked last week as well that through these deaths, time and time and time again, that Satan is shown to be a liar, that, that, that sin leads to death, that sin ultimately leads to destruction. We highlighted last week as well in, in the beginning here of Genesis 5 that God creates us separate from our sin. He created us in his image, and ultimately mankind's choice has led to what we see around us today. In Psalm chapter 51, a, a great text that shows the lingering effects of, of Adam's choice. David says in, in Psalm 1, um, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me? Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David highlights the fact that being brought into this earth, he was brought into sin. I think it's also important to note, and just giving you some points of, of reference to remember from Genesis 5, because again, it's a genealogy passage. You, you look at it and think there's not much here. I think it's important to note, too, in verse 2, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man. When they were created. This is another uh, underlying tone here that, that attacks what evolutionists would seek to teach. That, that man progressed to the point that we call man today. And yet what we highlight, have highlighted for us in Moses' account is that from the very beginning, when mankind was created, God named them man. That it was not a progression. It wasn't that, that mankind evolved into what we see today. From the very beginning... God highlighted the fact that they uh, that he had created man in his own image. We talked last week as well that there's there's one thing that really stands out in this chapter and it's the length of time that people are allowed to live. Why were they perm permitted to live so long? We talked at our very beginning in discussion on Genesis that the the environment and the the atmosphere and the setting was vastly different pre-flood as comparing to post-flood. So a lot of the, the environment allowed individuals to live longer, right? So God created it in such a way that mankind could live a long time, even after his sin. A couple of reasons for that. Number one, to populate the earth. 
you know, we, we said that, that the population starts to really boom because people are living for a long time, having kids and kids and kids, and those kids are growing up and having kids and kids and kids, and very quickly the earth is exploding with people. It also allowed the, the human race to advance in technology. There was, there was no past experience to build on at this time, so the great thinkers of our day today oftentimes are relying on the advancements of people in the past. But the people that we're talking about here before the flood have no history to work off of. And so God allows the great thinkers, we talked about this, to live longer. The, 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 the flip side of that is that the great sinners, the great sinners of that time also lived longer. And so their sin was allowed to, to carry itself out further than any other time in history, which is an example of why we get to the point where God brings the flood. Because sinners are creating greater sin than at any other time in history. The great sinners, God's relief to us today is that the great sinners don't live very long. That they don't have that long of a time to, to enact their influence. And yet at this time, they did. But then number three, to pass down truth. To pass down truth. Now this is, this is crazy. And I want, we, we talked about the genealogies and I tried to, help you wrap your mind around the people that were alive at the same time. And so we talked about how Adam lived 900 plus years and that he was still around during the time of Enoch, that, that he's only one generation away from the flood by the time that he dies. But, but wrap your minds around this. We have Adam who has kids, who has kids, who has kids, and then Methuselah. So Adam and Methuselah are alive at the same time. That's significant. Because you're talking about several generations where Methuselah can still have a contact point with a man who lived in the Garden of Eden. That's important because, again, there's no written inspiration here. And so Methuselah, so God's communicating who he is, but he's allowing people to live longer so that there is more points of contact about the things that they're hearing about God. So you have Adam who lives to the time of Methuselah. Very possible that the two of them have a conversation about Adam being in the garden. Okay? Methuselah lives all the way to the time of Shem. Okay? So Shem, Noah's son. We know Methuselah. We talked about this last week. Methuselah dies during the time, um, right before the flood. So he dies, and then the same year, from our records here, the flood happens. So you have Adam. You have Methuselah. Methuselah lives and can have conversations with Shem. Okay? So Shem can say, hey... Uh, my, my great great granddad knew the guy who lived in the garden. So, so everything that we're hearing, there's truth to it because it's not that far away from, from somebody that I can talk to that can give me firsthand experience of this. So while Methuselah was not Shem's granddad, for all practical purposes, he was because he was still alive, right? So when we think about talking to granddad, our grandparents, they tell us about how things were not that long ago. Shem had that with Methuselah. Now, we're going to see after the flood, people don't live very long, right? They start dying off. Shem is one that continues to live a, a, a long period of time. Okay, so he's pre-flood guy. He continues to live. Um, I think he lives to be 500 plus years. And then you really see it start to tailspin. But if you do the math, you've got Adam who lived to see Methuselah. Then Methuselah lives to see Shem. Shem is still alive when Jacob is on the earth. So we're talking about the father of Israel. We're talking about 
going to Egypt because of famine. In our minds, we're like, man, that was so long ago. Like we're reading through Genesis like that was ancient times when Ham, Sham, and Japheth were around. And yet if we do the math, Jacob, that means Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the great fathers of Israel, they still had Shem, a guy who could tell them what life was like before the flood. So you've got God communicating who he is. So you've got Jacob who's, who's about to go into Egypt because of famine, and he's thinking, you know what? My granddad, Shem, he knew a guy named Methuselah, his granddad, who knew the guy who lived in the garden. So their, their knowledge of God wasn't ancient history that was passed down. It was from a year standpoint, but because everybody was living so long, it really resonated with them. They had truth that they could really trust in. And it wasn't just ancient history for them. It was, it was family talk, right? Like it was stuff that they talked about when they celebrated family holidays. And that's, that's significant for us because as I was thinking about this, um, one, it removes any excuse of the people at that time not knowing about God, right? So Romans 1 says we knew about God and we abandoned our knowledge about God. This was willful rebellion by the people that are about to get rained upon with God's judgment. They knew. They knew about God. There were people that were still alive that were there at the very beginning when these people are making these willful, sinful, rebellious choices. All right, so going back to to our text, we talked about um, in our C groups, we highlighted this idea of passing on knowledge. So we've seen Adam's descendants passing it down through Seth. Seth's descendant Enish really starts this calling upon the name of the Lord. We talked last week, this is public worship. This is um, the idea of communicating things about God, his attributes, and kind of rallying around those things. So in our C groups this past week, we talked about what are you doing to pass on your knowledge of God to others? What are you doing specifically to pass on your knowledge of God to others? And I wanted to see uh, any things that were highlighted in your group that maybe you feel like would be beneficial to share this morning that we could kind of hear. Because one of the disadvantages of small groups is we have great discussion, but then it's limited within our C group. And maybe you don't hear some of the contributions of other groups. So anything that was shared in your group, things that are being done by people in your group, doesn't have to be you. You can highlight what somebody else shared. Things that are being done actively, intentionally to pass on knowledge of God to others. Or maybe you didn't have good discussion in your secret. Okay, so Alex and Topi had the opportunity to lead a devotion at their work, um, and so that's a way for them to pass on things that they're learning, studying, being taught themselves to others, okay? Which is great when we're able to connect this with the workplace, because we, we've talked about in Genesis, work is our worship. Um, and a lot of times that applies to 
Uh, I mean, it applies to both male and female, but a lot of times it's the male that's leaving the house to go do that. The female has the responsibility in the, in the house as well to be passing that on. And then those that, that are in the workplace, obviously, as well. But it's great when we can really connect that with our work outside of the home um, and we're faithful to pass on knowledge there as well. Other, other uh, thoughts from our discussion on Wednesday? plan on us having time for discussion today, so I'm okay with a little silence, because other thoughts from, from how people are actively passing on knowledge of God to others? Okay, so Denise just sharing the idea of of being a mom and being able to connect that with her kids intentionally, whether it's pulling one or two aside at a different time and and taking them along to, to do things with her. It's it's easy for a stay at mom stay at home mom to connect the idea that this is how I can do this. Now it's not easy to just you don't just default into being great at passing on christ to your kids like it takes intentional effort because your flesh will will tempt you to be lazy and to just do the minimal that it takes to parent to to discipline but not necessarily connect the discipline with god's word so it's it's easy in the sense that it's obvious how a a mom is to pass on knowledge of god to her kids it's not easy though to actually enact that right so um that's a great point that denise is saying that um, that as a mom, her being able to teach her kids individually um, at home throughout the day, and then also as kids, we're, we're fellowshipping with her kids um, is a great way, too, to, to identify the fact that I can pass on knowledge of God to other children as well. Other thoughts on how our, our church individually is passing on a knowledge of God to others that
Okay, so you and Alex both, Toby and Alex both, have an individual that they meet with weekly at various times. Um, but then the benefit is that that person gets to see you live out the type of things that you're talking about too um, and, and connect the words with the actions. Anybody else? For, for my profession, kind of going off the mom thing, it's easy to connect, like, how I should be doing this. I'm a principal at a Christian school. Like, like that's obvious. You should be passing on a knowledge of God. But there's some things that I've specifically tried to do to think kind of outside the box as to how I can intentionally pass on a knowledge of God. Because I could easily default and just do the minimal as far as principling goes. I can I can hand out suspensions. I can hand out detentions and 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 it just be part of my job, or I can choose to say, you know what, I'm going to discipline the way that God disciplines. I'm going to teach them and help them understand why they've made the choices that they've made and the right choices that should have been made. Um, but then also in, so I have a daily new, or a weekly newsletter that I send out to our parents. We have 150 churches represented at our school. Um, I don't believe that there's 150 churches in this area that are teaching a, a uh, a pure gospel, right? So, so I'm I'm trying to communicate a truth about God through my newsletter. So I've carved out a section to where I basically share things that I'm learning through my quiet time, and I get responses from parents all the time. Appreciate you sharing that. That's so encouraging. I've never thought of it that way. So that's an active way that I'm trying to communicate uh, my knowledge of God to others. Um, I do that through students. We've created a way now that when we do a detention that they have to to work through some scripture and answer some reflection questions and then sit down with me in my office and and talk about why they did what they did and what they should have done. Um, I'm not always convinced that my staff has a great understanding of the gospel. So our book that we're going through as a staff is a book on the gospel. I want to make sure they know the gospel. I want to make sure that they're teaching the kids that are entrusted to my middle school uh, to us, the true gospel as well. But I want to really challenge you right now with, with something that God was kind of working on me th- this past week. So we're talking about passing our knowledge down to God, and this will really connect with, with parents. I have a real desire. I told you last week, I, I can't tell you that my faith is based on anything that my grandparents did for my parents. Right? Like I told you, my grandparents seem to be good people, but my mom and dad got saved uh, or, or, or began to, um, yeah, so we'll just say that both my parents got saved at a, a youth camp that they were kind of going to on their own. So mom and dad weren't going, my grandparents weren't going to this church. They just were part of that group that youth ministry started to boom at that time, and so they found themselves into a youth group and got saved. So I have no tangible evidence that my faith is tied to anything with my grandparents, much less my great-grandparents and beyond. And so I've been thinking, you know, I have such a desire to be a godly father to AJ and to Abram. Like, I want to teach them everything that I know about God. But as I was reflecting on, like, you know, just the, the Cain and Abel account, I'm thinking, what if these are the only two boys that God gives me? And let's say something happens to one of them. And the other one grows up to just be a ding-dong, like doesn't get it, right? Like just rejects. I'm sitting here just pouring over him, and he's just like, no thanks. Right? We could all testify to people. We know parents that get it. They're godly parents, and for whatever reason, their kids don't. Kids just walk away. And so I've really been thinking, over the, even over the past year, but I was reminded of it this week, 
I want to make sure that I am able to pass on a knowledge of God, not just to my kids, but to my grandkids. And potentially to their kids that I don't ever see. Like, I want there to, because I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but as long as there are Vincents on this earth, my hope is that they can trace their faith back to me and my intentionality to pass it along. I don't want it to just stop with, I don't want to just entrust it to AJ and Abram and hope they get it. I want to leave it to where their grandkid, my grandkids can have it. And so I've started working through um, brainstorming how I want to write, I want to write a book about what I believe about God and what God has done in my life. Not so I can have it published and put in Christian bookstores, because I want it to be the Vincent legacy, the, the Vincent understanding of God and what God has revealed to, to me in my life, how he's taught me, how I've understood scripture, what we believe about certain things. Because at best, my dad gave me a library of books that had some good authors and some bad authors, and he never told me which was which. So I've spent a lot of years trying to figure out, why did dad have this book? Like, this is awful. Like, this has no place in my library. Um, so I, I'm trying to be intentional, not just passing on a knowledge of God to my kids. I'm wanting to think big picture down the road. I really want to leave a knowledge of God on this earth when I'm no longer here. I want to challenge you. To, that's, that's thinking real big picture now, but I want to challenge you with that. I want to challenge you, not just what am I doing in the immediate time frame, but am I doing anything that would leave a lasting understanding of who God is to others based on what God has done in my life? All right, moving along. Um, we Going back to, to our text for this morning, Enoch, talking about walking with God. So back in Genesis chapter 5, verse 22. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. We talked in our C groups this past week as well. What does it mean for you to walk with God? What does it mean for you individually to walk with, with God? Enoch's not the only person that ever walked with God, right? So it's not that Enoch did something special, therefore he got to leave this earth. Because it's not that much later, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. In Genesis chapter 24, Verse 40, same thing. We've got, um, we've got the, the servant of Abraham who's come and says, uh, But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angels with you and prosper your way. Okay, so, so the idea that they're walking with God. If we skip ahead to Genesis 48, verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Okay, so these guys, all these guys are walking with God. It wasn't just Enoch. Okay, but let's share some things that we talked about in our C group about what it means to walk with God. What are some things that were shared within your group that would help us better understand tangibly what it means to walk with God? Any thoughts on that from our, from our groups on Wednesday? Because I, I hope we can connect that it's more than, than our devotional life. It's more than when we pray during the day. Okay. 
Okay, constantly being aware of God's presence. What else? Other thoughts on what it means to walk with God? Okay. Um, something that I shared with our group on, on um, Wednesday is that I, I, I think it's it's right on with what Carrie's saying. It's it's a constant awareness and and, and understanding of God's presence, and then also. It's always connecting what we're doing with God's purposes. So you've got an awareness that God is with us, that God is present, and then connecting everything that I'm doing with his purposes. So I connect my marriage with what God wants my marriage to be, like his purpose for my marriage. I connect my work with what God desires for my work to be, the the, the type of work that I'm supposed to do as a means of worship to him, that I connect my hobbies and activities with God's purposes for those things, that I don't overvalue those things, right? So walking with God has the idea of being aware of God's presence and then connecting our um, our activities, our our um, our actions with his purposes, connecting our life with what he desires for it to be. Um, it starts with the idea of reconciliation, okay? So it's a renewed relationship with God that was severed by the fall. So Enoch, in order for Enoch to walk with God, it necessitates that Enoch comes back to God. Okay, so if we're understanding what was happening when Enoch was walking with God, it necessitated that Enoch come back to God. Adam and Eve had severed the relationship with God. They responded to his discipline with faith, and so we believe that Adam and Eve were saved because they demonstrated faith. But their children also have to make a, an expression of faith for it to apply to them. So just because they're born to saved parents doesn't make them saved, right? So as Adam and Eve's children grow up, as their children grow up, and their children grow up, it necessitates a personal response of faith. And so it starts with reconciliation. Uh, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the, the other passage where Enoch is referenced, and really we get more information about Enoch than we do here in Genesis, but in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, it starts off in, in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We skip down to where it specifically talks about Enoch in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the idea here is that we come to God through faith. And we've defined faith here before at our church as trusting truth. The truth is is that God exists and that he rewards those that seek him. But it comes from a personalized experience with him, not just passed down knowledge. So as these People are passing down knowledge to their descendants. It still necessitated an individual response of faith. Okay, so it's not just enough for us to tell our kids or tell our coworkers about God. We have to call them to a personal response to what we're talking about. That it's not just here. This is who God is. It's the idea that you've got to come back to God because you've been severed due to sin. And that you come back to God through faith, recognizing that he rewards those that seek him. And that's what we see all through Genesis 1 through 5, is that God rewards those that seek him. Those that pursue coming back to him, 
He's there with open arms welcoming them, ready to receive their repentance, ready to receive their faith, that God is working for that, right? So um, the implication for us today is that our faith today flows from a confidence in God's existence and his character. Next part of walking with God, it involves a reorientation. So there's the reconciliation that renews our relationship with God, and then secondly, a reorientation. It's the idea of going in the same direction as God. Two quotes here that I want to give you from Matthew Henry that I didn't get a chance to give you last week. Matthew Henry, when asked about what it means to walk with God, he says, To make God's word our rule and his glory our end in all actions. To make God's word our rule and his glory our end in all actions. Right, that sounds simple. If we could ever figure out how to do that, then we would be well on our way to being the type of people that we're supposed to be. He says, to walk with God means to make God's word the standard by which we do everything. Right? So, so I, don't make a, I don't make a move. I don't do something without first referencing God's word. I have people come to me all the time wanting counsel about decisions that they need to make. And a lot of times it's decisions that have already been made for them in God's word. That there's not a whole lot that we need to talk about. I can just direct you right here. God's already spoken to that issue. God's already said what to do in that, in that situation. Um, and so Matthew Henry is saying to walk with God means that we get real serious about making God's word our rule. That everything that I do is shaped by what God's word says. That we don't make big decisions. We don't, we don't make choices without first evaluating does God's word have anything to say about it. And then not just the action part, but ultimately we're looking at God's glory being the end of all of our purposes. He goes on to say, to make it our constant care and endeavor in everything to please God and in nothing to offend him. To make it our constant care and endeavor in everything to please God and in nothing to offend him. All right, um, moving, moving along now here back in Genesis 5. And then I want us to wrap up real quick with 13 things that I want you to, that sounds like a lot, 13 things that I want you to remember from Genesis 1 through 5. Because we're about to move into a new section of Genesis. We're about to leave behind the origin part. We're about to move into uh, historical Israel, Israel part. And so I wanted to make sure that as we move from this section that we don't forget some important key concepts that we've gone over over the past couple of months. Um, before we get into that, though, just kind of wrapping up again um, that, that last section of Genesis chapter 5, uh, when Lamech is on the scene and uh, uh, is bringing forth Noah. Um, Lamech reminds us that our ultimate hope is tied to relief from the curse. Noah is seen as an instrument of hope by his father, Ultimately, you have Noah's dad here saying, my life is dogged by hard work, pain, and the curse upon the land. How long, O Lord, until you set us free from this? You know, we talked about them living long lives, and so they're living through life, and they're living through the curse, and it's increasing this desire to see the pain and the toil and the suffering go away, to see relief from those things. Eden is is held forth as our hope for today. So, you know, we've talked about the fact that, that ultimately, as, as Christians, we're longing for the day that Jesus comes back and takes us back to paradise. Takes us back to paradise. And as I was thinking yesterday, as I was studying, every time we choose to sin, we're, we're saying, essentially, I'm not ready to go back to that. 
right? So, so what cast us out of the garden was a choice to rebel against God, to do things our way. And I think it's helpful to see that every time we choose to sin, it's an expression of, I don't want to go back there yet. I'm not ready. I'm not ready to give this up yet. And what Lamech is crying out, what, what he's teaching his son Noah, is that we are ready to go back. We are ready for the curse to be lifted. And, you know, we talked in our C groups, what, what are some things that you long to see lifted? What are some things that you long to see lifted? You long for Jesus to come back for these type of reasons. What are some things that maybe were shared in your groups? Things about the curse that we long to see go away. Yep. Sibling rivalry. Rooted in Genesis with Cain and Abel. All of us with multiple kids see sibling rivalry. Other things that we long to see lifted when Jesus returns that's curse-related. Sickness and disease. You know, we've, we've had families here that have had to endure that in even a greater sense than, than a lot of us. You know, we referenced the Evans family. The Evans family, their kids have struggled constantly with sickness, and it's only since they've moved uh, in that direction that they've experienced some relief from that. But um, that's certainly a, an area that uh, resonates more with some than others, but just that desire for sickness and um, pain and suffering to be um, to be resolved. Other things that we maybe long to see lifted. No more weeds. Yep. Apathetic hearts. And we were talking in our group because we had several. We talked about the fact that we we'll, we'll still work in eternity. Like Adam and Eve were given work; it was part of why they were created. Um, but we were talking about how some of us, when Jesus comes back, we're, we're, we're out of a job because our work is tied to things that are a result of the curse. So, you know, everybody that's in the medical field here, like you, you, you want your job, you'll have to think of a different occupation in, in eternity because your job won't be needed anymore, right? Like we won't have pain and suffering and injuries that need to be cared for, which will be a great thing. Um, but even in my profession, the, the teaching, the teaching aspect, the, the leadership aspect, but the resistance uh, will be so um, will be so encouraging to see lifted from from my occupation. Um, you know, we had this whole discussion on Wednesday, and then Thursday morning, before I can even sit down at my desk, I've got an angry parent sending me emails from their phone because their little girl has had inappropriate things said to her by a boy in my middle school. And so I texted Ben immediately, and I said. Man, I am ready for the curse to be lifted. Like my day hasn't even started yet, and I'm seeing effects of the curse. I'm seeing the the, the bickering and the the anger and the comments that that are not rooted in anything of Christ. Um, and so I long for the day that. And, and we talked about this in our in our group that work doesn't go away in eternity. It's the the frustration of work that goes away. It's us being able to work and see the fruit of our work. And not have anything hindering or frustrating our work. The fulfillment. Because we all love those days when, when our work seems to really work, right? Like it seems to really happen. Like it seems to be productive. We always come home tired and, and, and frustrated when those days that our work doesn't seem to work. That, that we have uh, elements that come into it that just frustrate our efforts. 
And so the encouraging thing that when Jesus comes back, we still get to work. We're just not frustrated in it. We don't have the weeds. We don't have the weeds that are there within our work that we're able to joyfully work when Christ returns. All right, let me give you some application. 13 things that I want you to remember, and I'm going to give these to you really quick, I promise. Um, these are just quick bullet points. That's why that's the only notes that I really gave you today, because a lot of what we've discussed this morning is just meant to uh, to just pull everything together that we've been talking about recently. And then I wanted to wrap up today uh, hitting on these things. So 13 things that, that I want you to remember from Genesis 1 through 5. Number one, God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our worship. And then out beside that you can put... He is our creator that provides good. God is worthy of our worship. He is our creator that provides good. I'd love for all of y'all to remember the, the, the order of creation, what was created first, what was created second and third. But more importantly, I don't, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not concerned if you don't know which day the sun, moon, and stars was created on. I want you to know that God is worthy of our worship based on what we see in creation. That he's our creator, and in creating, he is created in a good way. He has given good to his creation, making him worthy of our worship. Secondly, all of history is controlled by God for his purposes. All of history is controlled by God for his purposes. You'll remember, when we started our whole discussion on Genesis, we started... In eternity past, when the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, committed to this plan of salvation, right? So before creation even happened, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were, were, were uh, dwelling together in love. And through their wisdom, this plan of redemption was laid out before Satan was even created, before Adam and Eve ever made a choice. All of, all of history is under God's control for his purposes. And really what we're going to see as we continue to move through Genesis, one day when we get to the book of Revelation, everything is focused on Genesis 3.15. Everything is focused. Even in eternity past, it's focused on Jesus, the Messiah, defeating Satan, defeating evil, and receiving all the glory and honor. We see it pop up again all through Scripture. Philippians 2, when, when Jesus comes back, Every knee bows, every tongue confesses, because he's, he's demonstrated that he's worthy of it through his work. Okay, so all of Scripture points back to Genesis 3.15. All of history controlled by God for that purpose of Jesus receiving honor. Number three, man's purpose is to extend God's glory to the ends of the earth. Man's purpose is to extend God's glory to the ends of the earth. It's our responsibility to figure out how we fit into that purpose. All of us have to buy into that purpose, that God's glory is supposed to go everywhere. How do I factor in, in my little context, in the job that God has given me, the relationships that God has given me? How do I extend his glory in that area? Number four, understanding chapters one through five are paramount to explaining the hope we have. Understanding chapters 1 through 5 are paramount to explaining the hope we have. Right? So 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to always be ready, always be ready to explain the hope we have. 
for us to really do that rightly, we have to understand Genesis 1 through 5. It's where we, we have our beginnings of understanding about salvation, about sin, about the value of marriage, about the value of life. It's where we understand our hope for the future, right? So all of our hope for the future is tied to the fact that we once experienced it. It's not some mythical thing out, out in front of us. It's something that we, we abandoned and something that we left and something that God is rescuing us back to. Number five, apologetics must ultimately point people to Jesus. All right, so it'd be easy to think that Genesis 1 through 5 is, is something that we get all hung up on about with science and apologetics, but ultimately those discussions have to point people to Jesus. Number six, let me recap those five real quick. God is worthy of our worship. All of, our, all of history is controlled by God for his purposes. Number three, man's purpose is to extend God's glory to the ends of the earth. Number four, understanding chapters one through five are paramount to us explaining the hope we have. Number five, apologetics must point people to Jesus. Number six, we were created in God's image, but now bear a fallen image. We were created in God's image, but now bear a fallen image. That's the picture we see once we exit the garden that Adam was created in God's image. Chapter 5, he created or he, he birthed a man in his own image. Which means that our daily life is a submission to the renovation that God desires for us. It's a fixing of the image. So we were created in God's image. Adam tarnished that image. We're created in a fallen image. And now as, we, as we're reconciled back to God, our life becomes a daily submission to him. So that the Holy Spirit can renovate us into the new creation that we're supposed to be. Number seven. God has called me to a life of productivity. That requires me to plan, work, and rest intentionally. God has called me to a life of productivity. That requires me to plan, work, and rest intentionally. Don't, don't forget everything that we discussed about our, our calling to be productive as well as our calling to rest, right? So it's not, it's not a command that we have to do this, but we talked about it. Why would we not do this? Why would we not take a day of rest when it was, when it was ordained there at the beginning, um, when, we, when we know the, the extra added benefits of it? That if we, if we set out to intentionally plan our week for God's glory, we can intentionally plan to accomplish, to be productive, and to rest so that we're all the more better for the next week. Number eight, sin ultimately is a decision to not believe God's good intent. Sin is ultimately a decision to not believe God's good intent. And to resent his control. Sin ultimately is a decision to not believe God's good intent and to resent his control. You'll remember our discussion in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan leads Adam and Eve into sin because he causes them to, to doubt God's goodness. He, he, he plants it in their minds that God is not being good to them. He highlights the negative in God's commands. 
We said in that time that a thorough knowledge of God's word and an unwavering trust in his goodness are essential for daily victory. A thorough knowledge of God's word and an unwavering trust in his goodness are essential for victory. Number nine, my fight against sin. My fight against sin involves me taking responsibility and seeking accountability. My fight against sin involves me taking responsibility and seeking accountability. You remember in our discussion with Cain and Abel, we talked about uh, Cain not taking responsibility for his sin. We talked about Adam and Eve really not taking account, uh, uh, responsibility for their sin, wanting to pass blame, pass judgment on others. What we learn from that is that as, as sinners, we take responsibility for our sin. And we seek accountability to help us fight sin. Number 10, gender roles must be embraced so that our gifts are maximized. Gender roles must be embraced so that our gifts are maximized. Right? We don't just teach our children to be good human beings. We teach them how to be godly men and godly women because God created them differently. We saw the fact that God has gifted those two genders with with different gifts, different abilities, different strengths, different weaknesses. And that when they come together, we have completeness. When they come together, we have both working to really portray God's image, God's goodness. Okay, Uh, number 11, single years must be maximized. Single years must be maximized. We talked about the fact that. As we pursue marriage, as we long for marriage, that God gifts to us single years. And that they're not a, they're not a curse upon us, that they're a, they're a blessing and a gift that should be maximized. And as long as God has somebody in those single years, they need to be using those single years for the maximum amount of glory. We talked about um, how there's um, more potential for service to God during those years. We also talked about how we all play a role in that. Remember, and I can't, can't stress that enough, that, that our married couples in our church are, are called to encourage those that are not. That it's such a temptation in the culture that we live in to make an idol out of finding a spouse. To, to, to think that that's the only thing that can plead and can, can bring joy and satisfaction. And so our, our married couples have a responsibility to encourage those that are single so that they really do maximize their single years. Number 12, as we seek to fulfill the mission mandate, as we seek to fulfill the mission mandate, we need some to go indefinitely, some to go temporarily, and some to stay intentionally. As we seek to fulfill the mission mandate, we need some to go indefinitely, some to go temporarily, and some to stay intentionally, which continues to tie in with our plans for Uganda. Some going and some staying so that they can be sent. And then lastly, number 13. God is more concerned with my attitude in serving him than my outward actions of serving him. God is more concerned with my attitude in serving him than he is with my outward actions. Remember, that was what separated Cain and Abel. Both came, both worshipped, both brought offerings and sacrifices. But one's attitude was different. One was doing it out of obligation. One was doing it out of habit. The other was doing it out of faith.
All right, so we've covered a lot over Genesis 1 through 5. I would encourage you to go back and, and refresh yourself with, with notes and, and with podcasts. Um, it's such an important section of Scripture, and I, and I hesitate to even move beyond it because I feel like we've only, we've only scratched the surface of the importance of it. Um, but uh, after next week, we'll move into um, the account of Noah. Um, lots to be learned um, in how God works and, and, and moves in, in Noah's life, and so I'm excited for us to move into that section um, of Genesis moving forward. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you once again for uh, your word and the instruction that it provides for us. Father, I pray that um, you would allow the truths that are contained here in Genesis 1 through 5 to resonate with us, even as we move uh, beyond this section of Scripture. Father, I pray that we would not have been guilty of simply hearing this, but we would be faithful to, to do it, to apply it to our life. Um, Father, so many different things that, de- that demand and deserve our attention. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to uh, to meditate on these things and to apply these things. Father, you're, you're desiring for our church to be a, a body of believers that um, is concerned about your glory and, and your image extending to the ends of the earth. And, Father, we recognize that you are calling us to pass on a knowledge of you to those around us, to our, to our children, to our coworkers, to our family, to our friends. And, God, I pray that we would do it faithfully, that we would do it in the midst of being productive during our week as we work hard father as we start another week as we get ready to leave today father i pray that we'd be intentional with our time this week that we would be faithful to walk with you god that we would we would be aware of your presence this week that we would align our purposes for our week with your purposes we would connect that together god that we would make your word our rule we would make your your glory our end and our goal. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.